and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. On this episode, Brian talks with Jim Halfpenny about wolves and bears in Yellowstone, including why the wolves of Yellowstone are the most easily seen wild wolves in the world. I'm here with Jim Halfpenny. He is an author, scientist, educator, and tracker whose greatest love is bears, studying them since 1970. Jim has written over 25 books and videos, including Yellowstone Wolves in the Wild and Yellowstone Bears in the Wild. Jim is co-owner of A Naturalist's World, dedicated to providing educational programs and materials about natural history and ecology. Welcome, Jim. How are you? We're doing well here in Yellowstone. Uh, Fine morning out here with fresh snow on the mountain. Snow line came down to 5,500 feet. So uh, it's uh, winter's coming, right? It's on its way. Winter's on the way, although fall is officially, I think, tomorrow. (laughs) Right. Right. You got a quick turnaround there. Uh, so let's start with the naturalist's world. What, 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 is, uh, what is that? And you're, you're, again, you're a co-owner of a naturalist world. What, is, uh, what are some of the programs and materials that you provide? The naturalist world is an ecological education company that's designed to support uh, not only education but research in the park and at various locations around North America. We have students come in and uh, stay at our facilities, and then we run classes actually in Yellowstone National Park, uh, dealing with all aspects of ecology. And, of course, my love, bears and wolves. Right. So I actually want to want to uh, talk a little bit about bears and wolves. So I think uh, we're going to be in your virtual classroom for this chat. So I guess let's start with, with the wolves. Of course, uh, uh, this is kind of a dramatic backdrop to uh, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, but especially Yellowstone National Park. Um, so how are the new wolf packs changing the park? Well, there's a couple aspects to that. One is the ecological and the other is the sociological. Uh, sociologically, the wolves have brought in tremendous amount of people uh, whose number one goal to the park is to get to see a wolf. And that has raised, um, by one study, $35 million more in income to the park in what are called marginal dollars. And uh, that was in funds from about 10 years ago. So with inflation, it's much more than that now. Ecologically, um, the wolves have been involved with the downturn in the elk numbers within the park and um, probably a bit with the change of the park ecosystem uh, with less elk, less willows get eaten, we get more um, songbirds, for example, into the willows. So we are seeing a bit of a change, but that is also heavily moderated by climate change that's going on in the park. So it's far from solely the wolves. Uh, yeah, I have to imagine it's it must be hard to kind of isolate one variable right in such a complex ecosystem, but... Uh... But clearly the wolves, uh, and how many wolf packs are there now in, let's just say, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem or even the park? Well, within the park, there's probably about 11. It's always a little hard to be exact because some go in and out of the park. And within the ecosystem, um, that number is far higher, uh, possibly as many as 100 packs in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And are they thriving? 
wolves are doing quite well biologically. Uh, we saw initially the populations went high, and now they've come down a bit, and they're starting to stabilize around a uh, common number. Within the park, that's probably going to be about 10 packs and about 90 adult wolves by the end of each season. So they're doing biologically quite well. Uh, so let's let's back it up a little bit and then and talking about how they're how they're thriving. When and why were they introduced, or probably I should say reintroduced, back into the park and into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? By the 1930s, our federal and state policies had pretty well removed all wolves uh, from the continental United States. There were possibly a few survived in the Great Lakes area. And that was the goal, because at that time, we thought the best for wildlife management was to remove the predators on them. Times changed, and we realized that complete ecosystems were better ways to manage wildlife. And so we sought to try to make the ecosystems as close to what they were before European people arrived here. Well, that involved bringing the wolves back both for an ecological and aesthetic reason, we needed to have wolves in the ecosystem. We needed a place that was still wild, and Yellowstone is definitely wild. So with that, you know, when you mentioned the affecting the ecosystem, how, does it, how did it affect kind of the apex predator of the uh, greater Yellowstone ecosystem, man? And uh, obviously you can't hunt in the park for elk, but obviously with uh, elk hunting and throughout the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, more wolves, less elk. How did that affect hunting? And when you talked about the net uh, uh, impact on the economy, was that, was that an absolute just in terms of visitations, or has there been a net effect with uh, maybe less hunting? Or not at all. There's plenty of elk to go around. How, how does that look, Jim? Yellowstone National Park is not an island into itself. Because it's wildlife across the borders, and that would include deer, elk, moose, bison, bighorn sheep. Yellowstone is intricately linked into the hunting community of the West. And certainly with a decrease in elk, the revenues into the hunting community have decreased also. Uh, That's been offset to a great extent by the income from the wolf watchers. And now the dollars into the ecosystem from wolf watching are probably greater than the dollars that come in from outside sources for hunting. However, you can't, one or the other doesn't help our ecosystem. The product of having both of them helps keep the social end of our ecosystem going with financial um, security for families who have different bases of income. The hunters, some of the hunters have been, I shouldn't say hunters, I should say hunting guides, have been hurt by less elk. But it's not totally a product of the wolves that make less elk. We have a lot of other things going on, including climate change and changes in populations of other animals, such as bears and cougars. So there's not, again, there's not one, uh, no pun intended, there's not one bullet here that you can, uh, that you can fire at any one particular cause. It's pretty multifaceted. So, but the net effect is more people are visiting the parks uh, to see the wolf packs, and you said about ten or a dozen or so within within the park. That's uh, that's pretty significant. So what what of uh, what are what are one's chances of seeing a wolf 
and where do you think they should go? And again, I know this probably depends what time of year. Uh, so let's say now we're we're calling you in December. Uh, I'm sorry, September. Uh, if if we wanted to see a, a wolf now, where would I head to in the park? The odds of getting to see a wolf on any given day are pretty high. And certainly if you got two or three days, you could almost guarantee that you get to see a wolf. Right now, the two best places for wolves would be the Hayden Valley system and the Lamar Valley system. And, oh, today in a recent, Hayden Valley has uh, had wolves on a daily basis. The one thing, though, about seeing wolves is you can't come to Yellowstone and go out at 9 or 10 o'clock and hope to see a wolf. The wolves are active in the twilight hours, usually the morning twilight hours, and you need to be out there certainly by sunrise, but the dedicated wolf watchers are out there as much as an hour before the sun comes up. In the twilight, the wolves often hunt, and that's well before uh, the uh, sun itself comes up. Yeah, yeah, Jim, you've you've also backed into a, a piece of advice that, that we just generally give as well, especially in a park like Yellowstone. If you're there, not now in shoulder season, but if you're there in uh, high season, uh, just getting up early and hitting and hitting some of the more popular places is just a great practice anyway, so you avoid some of the crowds. And especially for animal watching, wolf, and to your point, to wolf watching, that's when you need to be, uh, you need to be up and out anyway. So sleeping until 10 and getting jammed in traffic is not going to probably be the winning combination. But uh, getting up early and, and getting to see some wildlife sounds like, a, sounds like the plan, uh, the plan all around. Uh, definitely, it's up early. Although for Yellowstone, I think the concept of the shoulder season is pretty well gone. And that in part's due to the wolves and the great desire to see wolves. Right now, I'd call Yellowstone a park of two seasons. The summer main season, which includes spring and fall, and then the winter season would be the other one. So really two seasons. There's not a shoulder season anymore because there are so many people that their great desire is just to get the glimpse of a wolf or a bear. Right, so even this weekend, uh, it's going to be it's going to be packed, and and one should be mindful. So that's that's pretty good advice. Um, what are some of the discoveries that scientists have made about wolf behavior? Especially, is there anything with the wolf, the new or newish wolf packs that have been in the park? Have they led to any recent discoveries or insights? I wish I had a count of all the scientific papers that have been published. The bottom line is that these wolves are the most visible wolves that there have ever been on the history of the planet Earth. Uh, nowhere in Alaska, Canada, anywhere else is there the magnitude of observation on the wolves, filming of the wolves. Uh, 365 days a year from can't see in the morning to can't see at night, we have wolf watchers out there from before daylight to after daylight. And some of the wolf packs that are more accessible by the road, their every action is very well known. And this has led to all sorts of detailed um, increases in knowledge about the wolves, about their behavior, um, how they interact as packs, how they interact with the wildlife that's out there. The number of things is a little bit difficult because of the number of new discoveries. It's a little difficult to kind of narrow it down even to one. Many of the discoveries are fairly complex such as the complex sociological structure within a wolf pack. So basically, not only is there a, a net economic impact, um, 
through the tourism, increased tourism. And there's obviously a, a net ecological positive impact through kind of uh, restoring the original ecosystem as close as one can. But there's also a net scientific impact of having basically these wolves on stage uh, and, and being able to be uh, observed fairly readily and tracked pretty readily. And not only are we learning here in the park, but much of the scientific stuff is extracted and used in other areas, such as the Isle Royale National Park up in Canada, up in Alaska. It allows us to have a concept of the functioning of the ecosystem as it may have been before European man arrived. And that functioning is nowadays quite impacted by the presence of people. The fact that we've got a place as complete as Yellowstone National Park in the mid-latitudes is a real blessing to understanding wildlife, and that understanding of wildlife is going to become critical as we face changes coming from climate change in the next 10, 20, 50, and 100 years. We need to know what we've got now to help save what we've got now for the future. Right. It's going to be a bait. We, we need at least a baseline to understand what's happening. And so we can, we can, as I would imagine, as technologies develop, hopefully there's some way to address this. And we know exactly, uh, exactly what we're looking at and what the, what the baseline of, of the wolves and how they affect the ecosystem. I imagine that's part of the, uh, part of the process. Baseline data is the key element of what we call long-term ecology. Until you know what your base is, it's hard to say what changes are going on. And when you have changes going on, it's very difficult to figure out management and mitigation, again, if you don't know that baseline of the animals. Exactly. So, and I have one more question on wolves, but it's, to sum up for a visitor, uh, I think when, to give some context, if you're visiting and you're in the Lamar Valley uh, pretty early in the morning uh, to get a glimpse of a wolf pack or a few wolves that are out there, uh, obviously, not only you part of the, uh, not only is it part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in a pretty intricate balance, but it has a pretty. Uh, what you're seeing there has a, I think it sounds what you're saying, Jim, has a huge impact on our understanding of what even may climate change, how it may affect uh, kind of this latitude or ecosystems like Yellowstone, and and gives you a greater appreciation for you're not just seeing an animal in the wild, but it's uh, you're now participating in something that's. Uh, having a great effect not only on the area, but it's having a great effect on our scientific understanding. Um, that's not a question. I just, I'm just summing up to see. <laughs> it's summing up sounding, uh, sounding like what you're, uh, what you're driving at, and it's, uh, it's pretty important. But I, I think that I wanted to end with wolves on. Uh, you know, it sounds like you're very passionate about uh, wolves. You must have some pretty great stories uh, that involve interactions with, uh, with wolves and other wildlife, I guess, either on the hunt or otherwise. Um, do you have anything that you want to share with us? Maybe, uh, you know, I know uh, we took a note here about its symbiotic relationship with something like ravens. Well, the raven story is an interesting story in itself. Um, ravens are a highly intelligent bird. And the ravens very quickly picked up on the fact that they could uh, follow wolves, get food, scavenge from the kills and the carcasses left by the wolves. Now, you think about this for half a second. There was not a raven left alive that had ever known a wolf. All the ravens had died off since the wolves were gone. So very quickly, they were able to discern species. You imagine that raven up there flying along. He says, oh, there's a coyote. Well, not likely to get food there. Oh, there's a wolf. 
I'm going to follow it, and I'm more likely to get food. And pretty quickly after the wolves were reintroduced, we discovered that they were honing in on the wolves to um, have carcasses and food they could eat. Now, this was not unusual because they've honed in on grizzly bears that were eating on carcasses and on what are called white bark pine nuts. So they knew from a long time ago to follow these key creatures to get their own diet. But it's interesting how quickly they learned to differentiate between a wolf and a raven and spend more of their time following a wolf and getting a larger food supply than they did if they were following a coyote. Do you think that was instinctual or was that learned behavior? Because behavior? as you said, the, the, that generation of ravens were long gone, that new wolves. Was it some trial and error or just somewhere in their DNA they knew, ah, wolf, I'm following, I'm following that I'm following, I'm following that wolf for the time being. I don't think you can pass that sort of information along in DNA. That was a learning process that was going on that they could see, uh, they could differentiate the two species, knew the larger species uh, was taking more uh, wildlife, leaving more carcasses behind. It's pretty certainly that that's a learned behavior. I had no idea ravens were that... Uh that intelligent and able to discern that. That's, uh, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty fascinating. Now, you were asking about stories. Let me share another interesting story. Um, one of my favorites is Wolf 253. He was a male wolf born in Lamar Valley. And when he was about two years old, he was in a fight with another pack. And the wolves in the other pack tore off his thigh muscle on his left rear leg, leaving him a cripple. And that is not good for a uh, predator, but a lot of them survive. They're amazing at what they do, and he survived. But after a while, uh, he disappeared, and we figured, oh, well, that's the end of him. Well, lo and behold, a while later, we get a call from down near Salt Lake City, and the person says, we have a radio-collared wolf in a leg trap here. Do you want him? And so one of the biologists went to... Salt Lake City, and lo and behold, there's Wolf 253. So they put him in the vehicle and brought him back into Grand Teton Park, but snow had closed all the roads, so they had to let him go in Grand Teton, and he disappears. Well, some time went by, maybe a month or so, and lo and behold, he shows up. Now, having crossed all of Yellowstone in the deep snow, he shows up at his uh, area where he was born. That's pretty remarkable there, but when he gets there, he's now traveling on two and a half legs because the right front foot was hurt by the trap, and he's still limping on it. And I saw um, the alpha male of the pack lay down beside him and actually lick his right front foot. He knew that it was hurt, and he was trying to help with uh, the healing process. Well, 253, evidently, when passing through Grand Teton National Park, decided that uh, there were some packs down there he might like to be involved with. So the next summer he went back to Grand Teton National Park. And there he, over time, was the alpha male of two different packs, which is pretty remarkable because he was uh, basically, the rest of his life, he only could travel on the three legs. But he did well for himself. And one of my favorite wolves. That's amazing. Why do you think, how did he become the alpha male if he was... 
uh, inhibited? Uh, is it is it a this is a dumb question? Is it? I always assumed it was just physical prowess, but is there something about personality or or uh, how did he become the uh, the king of the hill? Well, I to become the alpha male doesn't imply that there was another alpha male. First off, uh, uh, he may have become the alpha of a pack that only had females. Um, it's possible there was an alpha male that in spite of the fact he was on three legs, he was still also uh, more dominant and able to displace that male. So there's a lot of ways that could have come about. And I don't happen to know enough about his situation to know for sure how it came about. What a, uh, what a resilient wolf. Um, but, well, let's, uh, let's talk about another, uh, another passion of yours in bears. And we should say our, uh, our kids are nuts about bears because we've, uh, we've had some pretty good luck seeing them in, in national parks. However, not Yellowstone because uh, we were there in the wintertime. Of course, they were hibernating. So uh, this is going to be new for us too. So uh, first off, I'll start very basic. What, what kind of bears are in Yellowstone? Well, there are two types of bears that live here, two species, the black bear. And the black bear would really be better if we didn't call it by a color name because it comes in Yellowstone. We have black, we have brown, we have blonde, uh, we have cinnamon. A better name for the black bear would be the American bear because Mm -hmm. it's found only in the Americas. Then the other bear we have is the grizzly bear. And the classic grizzly bear has white tips or grizzling on the end of its spur and can look quite grizzled, therefore grizzly bear. Where could we see the bears? Are they, are they everywhere or is it, are they located in a particular area of the park? What, where would you, what would you recommend? The best place to see black bears is in the Tower Roosevelt area. That is at least for the first two-thirds of the summer. And the latter third, when it's really hot, those big things with fur coats go high into the mountains. Uh, the best places to see grizzly bears are, again, Lamar Valley and Hayden Valley. I would say Lamar Valley is the very best place to go see grizzly bears. Now, the bears like to stay away from the roads where the people are, so I highly recommend that you carry binoculars. Or if you see people that are watching the bears and they're using spotting scopes, go over and ask if you might look. Most people are very happy to share their spotting scope and show you uh, the great experience they have of being able to watch a bear. Uh, that's that's great advice. What 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 else? Just some, some basics about what we should know about the bears in Yellowstone. Where, uh, uh, you know, what do they eat generally, and um, how do they interact? We talked about the wolves and and how they interact with the the ecosystem. How do the bears interact with the ecosystem? What's their impact? Well, bears are lawnmowers on four legs. 70% of the average bear's diet is vegetation, and they can get by on 100%. Uh, now, no bear's going to turn down a chunk of meat if it has a chance, but they don't have to have meat even though we call them a carnivore. And for the bears, the items that are critical to their diet besides vegetation are fish and moths and uh, deer and elk. Fish right now are in great decline because of introduced lake trout that have killed off the native cutthroat trout. Moths are found in the high country on the east side of the park, way above timberline. And only a certain portion of the bears are out in that country and get to feed on them. But they'll eat 2,000 moths easily in a day. And that's a pretty good chunk of food coming in. 
then when they have a chance, they will scavenge off the wolves, a carcass of a deer or a elk, or if they have a chance, they will kill those on their own. But for the most part, elk and deer are faster than the grizzly bears. Although some grizzlies are pretty good at being able to sneak up and kill elk and deer. So the diets of the bears, largely vegetation, but meat when they get a chance. It's funny, you, you would not think of a bear as a stalking animal, right? Uh, but uh, I guess if it has a chance, it, it'll, uh, if it can find something to take it down and, and come on it unawares, it will. Well, both bears and wolves are stalking animals. Uh, both are quite successful at stalking close to things that they see visually ahead of time and managing to uh, use that form of predation to their best advantage to get their meal. And is there any, just with bears and wolves, is there any symbiosis between the bears and the wolves directly? Or they're, you know, they're both predators and uh, they're not going to really cross paths too much? Oh, bears and wolves cross paths all the time. Uh, they are both predators. The wolf is what we call a cursorial predator, meaning that it uh, takes its prey down by uh, running it down, whereas the bear is more likely to uh, use stalking or use scent and find, a, for instance, an elk calf in the grass. Bears, besides being a lawnmower on four legs, are a nose on four legs. And whenever there's a carcass, if they're anywhere downwind from it, they're likely to come to the carcass. So wolves that have killed something are likely to have grizzlies show up. And then we often have battles between them. Who wins Who wins? kind of depends on who's most motivated. A female grizzly with three two-year-old cubs is a very formidable bear because she's got, it's a unit of four, actually. And they're likely to take the carcass over, drive the wolves off. At other times, you get a large wolf pack, they'll drive a grizzly bear off. And what happens most of the time is they will, either the bear or the wolf will feed till its stomach's full and then go lay down to rest, and the other one may get a chance to come in and feed. So interactions at carcasses are very um, frequent and one of the great events to get to watch. Yeah, sounds dramatic. Um, but keying off that in terms of their diet, how have the bears reacted to some of the ecological changes? You, you know, and Jim, you mentioned some of these before: the precipitous decline of cutthroat trout and white bark pine trees. How are they reacting to that? Well, the bear population has been going up. It bottomed out about 1972 at about 140 grizzlies. And we're now over 700 grizzlies in the Yellowstone ecosystem. So bears are doing well. They're adapters. They learn, they adapt. Uh, they, for instance, with the wolves, um, we have a few bears that have learned, especially in the fall when they're trying to fatten up for hibernation, to follow a wolf pack and try to steal food anytime they can. And oftentimes they can usurp the whole carcass from the wolves. Bears do well. The worry for the bear is climate change. You've got a big thing and a big fur coat, and the warmer it gets, the harder it's going to be for grizzlies in the ecosystem. Right, and I imagine, uh, well, I don't, I don't know this. Here's a, the question is with hibernation. If you have climate change, warmer winters, do you, are you seeing bears pop out uh, prematurely from hibernating? And if so, 
how does that affect their general well-being if they're not getting the sleep, the hibernation that they generally get? Well, we cannot document or prove that bears are hibernating less. But there's a misconception about hibernation. People tend to believe that, oh, bears go in, they come out. Well, the emergence period and the entry period goes on for over 90 days. So we have bears typically out by the first week in February, so that'll be a big old male grizzly. In the last, the second week of May, maybe the last one comes out. So we can't say they're coming out any earlier. Remember, where the bears hibernate high up in the hills, and it's pretty cold there, and it's going to take a lot of climate change to affect the hibernation way up there in the mountains covered over by snow. Perhaps someday that will come. But right now, although you'll hear people talking about it, with all the data that's been collected through all the years, it cannot be showed that bears are either entering the dens earlier or emerging uh, earlier. Got it. So, so where else is uh, climate change affecting? You, you indicated that it's really affecting the bears. How else? Just uh, based the fact that they're uh, this large animal with a with a lot of fur and a lot of fat, keeping them that they can overheat, or is there anything else in terms of some of their uh, with their diet or anything along those lines? Directly, things like overheating could be a problem into the future. And the bear, the grizzly bear, uh, you know, the heat factor might be just one element in how it survives. The climate change, though, affects many things. It affects um, the vegetation. As we see vegetation changes in the park, that may affect what the elk and deer can eat, and uh, that may lead to lower populations of elk and deer, which directly affect the bear. One of the things we're seeing with climate change going on is invasive species coming in. A critical one is cheatgrass. In cheatgrass, early in the spring, you know, it's a nutritious grass, you eat it then, but once the seeds come out, it gets into the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth of all sorts of animals, elk, deer, and carnivores, and it's like a porcupine quill. It digs in, it starts infection. And so this is probably one of my greatest fears for the future Yellowstone is the warming and the cheatgrass coming in and what it will do to the wildlife. And that will go right up the chain to the grizzly bear. Uh, so the cheatgrass is the Trojan horse, right? It starts there and uh, it just cascades on up this chain. So that's uh, uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Now, now, Jim, you talked to us about wolf 253. Can you tell us about bear 264? Well, I will argue bear 264 was the best known grizzly bear ever in the history of the planet Earth. (laughs) Uh, For 10 to 11 years, she raised her cubs next to the road. One of the things that bears have learned is that um, next to the road, there's a great food source and there's a lot of people on the road. The Park Service manages the people on the road so they're not a threat. And bears are willing to come quite close to those people. Well, the advantage to that is male bears don't like that and they stay away. So this is a fairly safe zone for that bear. Now, should that mother see a person leave the road and come towards it, she's going to run with her cubs pretty fast probably. But Mm -hmm. 264 raised three litters there. And... Because she was close, oftentimes as close as 25 yards, and we'd have bear jams of hundreds of cars and people, she was the most photographed bear in the world. 
Uh, people got to know her. She was not aggressive. And she knew people and was willing to tolerate them in order to have this place to raise her cubs. Regretfully, though, the sad side to that is she got chased onto the road, probably by a male bear. We don't know. We didn't see it. And she got hit by a car and oh, no. ended up dying out of the accident. Um, if she'd been in the back country, she'd never been chased on the road. But on the other hand, she introduced hundreds of thousands of people, I would say, to grizzly bears. And the fact that they're not something that one has to be afraid of every step they take in the park. Grizzlies are really quite tolerant of people. And I, I kind of think they've got a good sense of humor. If they didn't, we'd have a lot more encounters. Right. It seems like they have a lot of personality. And uh, so with that personality, what, what is, Jim, what is bear art? We, we hear about this. What is bear art? Well, bears claw trees, uh, both grizzly bears and black bears. Grizzly bears uh, are poor tree climbers, so they don't usually leave marks too high up. Whereas black bears are great climbers. They leave trails up and down the tree. And as a tracker, which is my profession, I can read the story of a bear climbing a tree and coming down. And those marks are scars on the aspen, and those marks are being made by a sentient thinking being, and they're temporary. And so it's just like the art of humans, a thinking being leaving a record or a mark of its life. These are short-lived, and they will eventually disappear. If you were in a park in the southwest, you would talk about uh, petroglyphs, the marks left by the Anasazi Indians. These are the dendroglyphs of Yellowstone and parks that have bears, and they form the art of the bear. The bear is telling us a story. Now, some of the stories are climbing. Some of the stories are behavioral. Um, They're leaving scent marks and claw marks to let the opposite sex know they're there or to let other bears, male bears will leave marks for male bears, I believe, because that tells the other bear, Hey, stay away from me. You know, I really, this is my area. Stay away. It's a great way to end with, but for one question I have for you, you, you mentioned tracking and that you're a tracker. So we've only talked about seeing a wolf, seeing a bear in the flesh uh, what what are some signs that we should, you just mentioned a few for bears. What are some of the other signs that we should look for um, when we're out on the trail to, to note that if a, uh, a wolf or a bear had been there? If you're going into the backcountry, one should be aware of what the signs of wolves and bears are, what the footprints look like, what the scat looks like, and keep an eye open. You know, it's kind of the old joke, but if you see a bear scat and it's steaming, you better be very careful about what's happening. And there's several good books on the market, uh, especially for Yellowstone, that will help you learn those signs. So, Jim, if I wanted to, if I wanted to go online and, and study up on what these tracks look like, what the scat looks like to discern the difference, uh, uh, what's a resource where I can, uh, I can look to? For Yellowstone National Park, I have a couple of books out. Uh, one is called Scats and Tracks of North America. And another one is Scats and Tracks of the Rocky Mountains. And these will show you the signs of uh, all the animals, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and mammals. But you can turn to the chapters on wolves and bears to familiarize yourself before you hike into the backcountry. 
And uh, one should be aware of those signs. If you come across that fresh steaming pile of bear scat, you better be extra special careful there. Right. So, uh, uh, so scats and tracks. To me, that sounds like a perfect bathroom reading, reading material, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry, but that's, uh, that's fantastic. Jim, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this was a great education for us, and I think, uh, I think for anyone who's visiting Yellowstone National Park to have a baseline of what, uh, what's going on with the wolf population and the bear population and, and how to successfully and safely interact with them, invaluable. So thank you very much for your time. And thank you very much also. Again, this was uh, Jim Halfpenny, author, scientist, educator, and tracker. Uh, Yellowstone Wolves in the Wild, Yellowstone Bears in the Wild, and uh, he's also a co-owner of A Naturalist's World. Um, So check that all out. And uh, again, Jim, thanks very much, and we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. Show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast catcher. If you like the show, write a review and please help us grow our audience by telling your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks on Instagram from the parks you are visiting. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.